Y'all give God glory for that. Amen. So we're here to have the talk, and we need to start kind of over and we just, y'all just pray for me. I, we need to start right there. Uh, and I'm, I'm just going to... I'm just going to say this. In preparing a sermon on sex, there were many things that became apparent to me. But one of the very first things is this, is that we have all these phrases and terminology that we use in everyday life, in everyday discussions, that you cannot use in a sermon about sex. And so I just want to, in advance, when that moment happens upon us here in a little while, right, say something completely stupid that you just forgive me for it in advance. Y'all say, we forgive you. I mean, j- j- just know that, it, that it's going to happen at some point. The fact is this, is people ask the question, so exactly why is it we're talking about sex? And all those things up on the screen are true, but one of the reasons we're going to have this discussion is because I'm afraid that the discussion is not happening in your home. And so we're going to talk about it in here, but we also have to, we have to be in the same place knowing that God has a plan, has a plan for every one of us in every single part of our lives. We have a tendency to compartmentalize our lives. Well, this is, my, this is my home life, and this is my work life, and this is the life I have with my kids, and this is the life I have with my parents, and then way over here, tucked in the corner, that's my sex life. We just don't talk about that. And, and God, I want you in this part of my life, and I want you in this part of my life, and this part. But you know what? This, this is off limits. The fact of the matter is, God is the inventor of sex. He is not surprised by the fact that people are out there having sex. That's the way he planned it. As a matter of fact, that's his gift to us. But as society, we have taken essentially what is God's most beautiful gift and we've done what to it? We have made it an ugly, nasty thing we don't talk about. That's not the way that he intended. As a matter of fact, in God's Word, there are over 200 references to sex in here. It's a big deal to God. And the fact is that God wants us to have the experience the way that he intended it. And what we're going to talk about today specifically is the way that God intended it and also some of the pitfalls. Now, I want to skip to the end of the sermon. Okay? I want you to hear this. Universally, we're going to talk about something today that is going to hit you the wrong way. I don't know what it is for you. I have have no idea what it's going to be. Many of the people in here are going to say, well, I completely screwed up. If that's what God's intent was, then I have messed this up like nobody's business. God must hate me. Um, I I must be just, just an abomination to him. I want you to hear this. His forgiveness covers everything. And that perhaps what is going to happen today is that you're going to allow the chains to fall off of you because Satan has you so wrapped up in guilt and remorse and grief and despair and fear that you don't even know which end is up. That today, during this, during this sermon on, uh, on sex, you're going to see that God has a plan for you before, during, and after. And so I want you to already have in your mind even though there's going to be things in here that, that, may, that may hit you just, just wrong, that God's forgiveness covers all things. You know, we should never, ever say that Jesus' blood doesn't cover everything because His blood covers things we're not even aware of. So I want you to think about, I just want you to think that forgiveness is, is available and also know that God has a plan. You know, what a glorious thing. Bless you. That was awesome. Who did that? We want to get a recording of that. If you'll just check with the AV guys, I can use that in the next sermon. So, that was incredible. (laughs) What was it exactly? That was a sneeze. Glory be to God. Amen? (laughs) I hope you come back to fellowship. I really do. (laughs) Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just, I, I thank you for everything.
Lord God, I, I thank you for allowing us to be here. Father, I just thank you that, the, that even though people have known about this topic, that they're still here today. Lord, and I, I just I pray for your courage right now, that you will just give me the words to speak. Lord God, that you will just, um, that you will let all of us just see your glory just in every part of your creation. And Lord, right now, I just lift up those that are already feeling the, uh, the pressure of this discussion. The Father, maybe that they are already aware of what you're going to work on in their life today. Lord, that they will not be overwhelmed by grief or anxiety or guilt, but Father, rather that they will see just the shining light of your glory and forgiveness. Lord, I just pray that you have all of us prepared. Lord, that you just make us all ready for your word. That Father, ultimately, you love us so much that you sent your Son to die on the cross for us. And that maybe out of this message today, Lord God, somebody will recognize the need that they have for you. But, Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for the gifts that you've given us. Specifically, in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, y'all uh, know that we're going to be in God's Word because we're going to talk about sex. We're going to use the textbook on that. So take out your Bibles. Let me see them. Hold your Bibles way up in the air. Hold your Bibles up. If you bring your, make sure if you have a Bible, bring it to church. If you forgot your Bible today, don't worry about it. We have one for you. If you'll just raise your hand wherever you are. Raise your hand. We will bring a Bible out to you. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be shy. There's one right over there. You know what? You can take that Bible home with you. If you need an extra Bible at your house, need one for your truck or need one to take to work or put in your backpack or something like that, there's a whole table full of them back there. They're yours for the taking. Allow us to the blessing of giving you, that, giving you God's Word. So I'm going to give you three points. I'm going to tell you what the three points are. The three points are this. Sex is God's invention. Sex is God's plan. Sex is God's gift. And we're going to spend time talking about each one of those. We're going to start off with the fact that sex is God's invention. Y'all say amen to that. God is the one that designed us. He is the one that put us together. But the problem is, is that we have this misconstrued vision of what sex actually is. In our culture, in our society, thank you, Mr. Bill Clinton, people have a tendency to, who is a liar, by the way, because he did not tell the truth. Can I get an amen? We'll talk about that in just a minute. I'm not talking about his politics. I'm talking about his theology. The fact is this, is society has said that sex is only the act of sexual intercourse, that that is what sex is. That is not what the Bible says. That's not even what the state of Texas says, by the way. But sex is any interaction that you do with somebody or for somebody that causes them to have the thought that they're going to end up having sexual intercourse up to and including sexual intercourse. A couple of weeks ago when we had the discussion on dating... I told you that in dating that there are specific rules that apply, biblical rules, not Pastor Michael rules, but biblical rules. And one of those was about the amount of physical contact that two unmarried people can have. And the Bible is very clear that you can greet each other with a holy kiss. You can say hello, goodbye, shake hands, hug, hold hands, kiss on the cheek, cheek you know, kiss, kiss, goodbye, that's it. That everything else, according to what the Bible says, is sex and is leading to the final consummating act of sexual intercourse. Now, how many, be honest with me. How many of y'all think that that is too rigid of a definition? Don't be embarrassed. Show me your hand. This is my answer. This is not stuff that I make up. As a matter of fact, you say, well, where does the Bible say that? What I do know is that every time the Bible refers to the act of sexual intercourse, it actually says, and he laid with her. So it specifically refers to that act. But when Paul comes back and talks about sexual immorality, which we'll talk about more here in just a minute, it refers to any sex or anything that might think that you're going to have sexual intercourse. All of that is included in that definition. You see, God, as the inventor of sex, and it says this in Genesis, it says this, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God is the one that made the rules. He's the one that designed us. He's the one that put us together. He's the one that wired us. And that is what God's plan is. The fact is this. First of all, is that sex is meant between one man, one woman who are married. Those are the requirements. There are no other acceptable applications in God's, in God's world, in his, all his creation, in his word, that according to the great creator, the one who has done these things, that sex is only between one man and one woman. Now, sex is created to be a couple of things. Let me give you four things. First of all, sex is created to be biological. If you guys remember, if you were here during our discussion on emotions, we talked about the fact that every single emotion that we experience actually has a physiological basis. You might be saying, well, then it's not God from God. No, God created biology. I want you all to remember that. God created science. He's the one that created the molecules. He's the one that caused them to react in the ways that they react. For example, when we fear something like anger or fear or hatred or something like that, we have a, a great big old dump of adrenaline from our, our adrenal gland that causes us to experience those emotions. In the exact same way, God has caused us to have the desire for sex and, and it's kind of interesting because we've talked about the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic. One side is the fight-or-flight side. The scientists, I have not shared this with you yet. I was waiting for today to share with you what the scientists call the other side. It's called the feed-and-breed side. So you have fight-or-flight, feed-and-breed on this other side. As a matter of fact, one of the things that God has created within us when that, in that biological design is the, desire, is the desire to have sex. Sex is also physical. God created us intentionally the way that he created us. We are wonderfully and perfectly made exactly the way we are anatomically. God created us for sex. God created us to have sex with the opposite sex. Now, girls. Girls hit puberty between the ages of about 10 to 14. And after puberty, girls' hormones rage for about three days a month, causing them to have the desire to have sex. Boys hit puberty between 12 and 16 years old. And their hormones range between 28 and 31 days a month, depending only on how many days are in that month. <laughs> but that's how we've been created. Now, you may ask the question, then why shouldn't 14-year-olds be having sex? Because that's not the way God planned it. Yes, you're designed this way, but you're designed to begin start, to start dealing with those emotions in preparation of what's going to happen in marriage. The Bible says that we are to control our own bodies. That God will never tempt you beyond what you can control. As a matter of fact, the Bible is very clear that temptation does not come from God. It comes from Satan. But biologically and physically, God has created us for sex. He also created us for sex emotionally. Sex is meant to be an emotional, an emotional time. He created us within us the desire. He is the one that designed those hormones. He is the one that designed them not just to meet the physical needs, not just to meet the biological needs, but also to meet the emotional needs. There is a very real emotional side. And unfortunately, society has, has tried to make sex only about the physical side of life and has tried to remove the emotional side. I remember when I started going to college, and I just want to prepare you guys. Um, in publicly funded universities in Texas, every incoming freshman is required to take a class. At Southwest Texas, they called it General Studies. But it's a one-hour class, and it's essentially a class on how to live apart from your parents. Because they kind of make the assumption that up to that point that your parents were keeping an eye on you and taking care of you. Do you know what the entire class was? The entire class was about how to have sex and get away with it. Taught by the university. You see, our society continues to rain down upon us that there are no emotional issues that are attached to sex. 
We're going to talk about this more in just a minute, but the way God created sex, He created it to be an emotional time. Sex is also created to be spiritual. Now, we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. Now, I want to go ahead and prepare you. Three weeks from today, I'm going to deliver a sermon called The Truth About Intimacy. And in that sermon, nobody... um, High school age and younger will be in here, so you guys are going to be off doing something else. I don't know what Tim and, and Clayton have planned for you. But this is going to be a discussion, uh, you know, for the adults. It's an R17. But we're going to talk about intimacy because we have taken the spiritual side of intimacy out of our sexual relationships. And in counseling, when, when we, over the last couple of years, as we've seen pe- uh, couples that have come through that are experiencing uh, marital difficulties, almost without exception, the very first sign that there was a problem in the marriage was the lack of intimacy. The physical part may have still been there, but the intimate part was gone. And so as a church, we want to be alongside you, and we want to start equipping you to have that intimate sign, to be able to recognize those signs. So in three weeks, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to discuss the fact that God intended sex not just to be physical, but also emotional and spiritual. We have now completed point number one. Y'all say, glory be to God. Amen? Because point number two... Y'all buckle in, because here we go. Y'all ready for this? Say, I'm ready. Or, or, or there's the doors, I mean, because we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to dive off in this. Point number two is this. Sex is God's plan. God made us this way on purpose. God made us physically, biologically, emotionally, spiritually. There is not a single part of the way that we're put together that God did not intend. As a matter of fact, God was not surprised when he was walking through the garden one day and came around the corner and there were Adam and Eve. Boom, chicka, wow, wow. He didn't go, oh my gosh, what are you, Jesus, did you, what are they doing? Dude, you're the one that made them. That didn't happen. God expected that relationship to be there. God expected for us to actually have sex with the people that we are married to. We keep on coming back to that. But even though it is part of God's plan, even though it is part of God's plan, we have taken what He has created and we have made it into something that He never intended. It says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20. It says this, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. Now I I want you to pay attention because we have a translational issue here. This is from the ESV. If you have the NIV, yours looks a little bit different because it has quotation marks around that phrase. All other sins a man commits are outside his own body. That is actually the correct translation. Because what the Apostle Paul is doing is he is quoting the Corinthians. When he wrote the letter to the church at Corinth, if you look through you know, these letters, 1 Corinthians 2 Corinthians, the overall topic really kind of comes back to sex and operating outside of God's principles. And their argument back to Paul was, but hold it, sex is not a sin because sin can only occur outside the body. Sex is an internal thing. And Paul is saying, no. He who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now pay attention to this. I want you to, this is, this is, this is, you cannot miss this. You are not your own. You, your physical body, what other people see is on loan to you because Christ is the one that paid for you. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. And the price was Christ's death. Therefore, now, if you take that into consideration, 
that your body is not your own, then the next next statement is easy. Therefore, honor God with your body. So the question comes down to this. It says flee from sexual immorality. What exactly is the definition of sexual immorality? Instead of giving you the definition of sexual immorality, I'm going to give you the definition of sexual morality. Hebrews 13.4 says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Sexual immorality is any sex outside of the marriage covenant. I'm going to say that again because I want, I, want I want you to understand this. Sexual immorality is anything that occurs with anybody else who is not your spouse. That is sexual immorality. Let me tell you about a failure that I have had here at Fellowship. Let me tell you about a failure that as a staff that, that we have been engaged in. This is about True Love Weights. Who does True Love Weights target? Come on, say it. High school students, right? Targets are youth. We make a big deal. They're getting all, you know, Bible studies up there and all this other stuff saying, you know, and essentially it's abstain from sex until you're married. That's what it, you know, talking about the, you know, what happens when you don't and all that other stuff. And you know what? It has just been heavy on my heart this week that we have missed it. We have gotten it wrong. Because what about the 20-somethings? Why are we not including them? Let me tell you, we're changing that today. What about divorced people? I had this discussion a couple years ago. I, I delivered a similar sermon. This guy comes up to me after church and said, Okay, I, you know, I, heard your, I heard your message preached, but that didn't apply to me, right? I said, Which part? The part about not having sex. I said, No, that, that applies to you. He said, No, I've already been married, so I can keep on having sex, right? No. But he said, Preacher, you don't understand. No, I think you don't understand. I'm not the one that made the rule book. I'm just the reporter. This is what God's Word says. No sex outside of marriage. And so I, I, you know, I've, I've been thinking about that and wrestling with that and, and looking at true love waits. And the fact is, is that as a church, we should not be saying, students, this is just for you. We should be saying, anybody and everybody, true love waits is for you. To this point, I want you to hear this. That in two weeks when we have the true love waits commitment ceremony... I am challenging not only the students, but I'm challenging the, the, the people that are in college, the people that are out there working in the workforce. I'm challenging the people who are, who are divorced. I'm challenging people who are widowed. That all of you take that very same commitment and say, no, I will abstain from sex according to God's will in my life because that's what God wants for you until I am married again. We're going to take it a step further. Students, if you have a single parent at home and you want them to be a part of this, I'll buy the ring for you. If you have a brother or sister that isn't here, we'll buy the ring for you. And you invite them to be here. Now listen to me. You should love those people enough to stand up and say, you know what, this is God's plan for you. The fact is, is that this is something, you know, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but But sex is not just a gift from God, but sex is a gift that we choose to give to somebody. And there's going to come a point in time when you're ready to give that gift to somebody, how do you want that gift to look? If it's your parent, how do you want that gift to look for them? If it's your brother or your sister or your friend or somebody else like that. You know, I need you all to pray about that. But I will tell you, that's just been heavy in my heart. I talked to to Pastor Tim and, 
and Neil and, and Clayton about that this week. And, and we're in agreement on this, that true love waits is no longer going to be relegated just to the high school. Y'all say amen to that? Say amen to that? What a, that's a glorious thing. Give God glory for that. So, so here we go. We're going to talk about what happens when you have sex outside of marriage because I, I want you to hear something. It's not free. You don't get away with it. You, you don't walk away unscathed. There are four effects I want to talk about. First of all, sex outside of marriage leads to emotional issues. Those emotional issues are guilt, mistrust, sadness, anger, loneliness, fear, regret, withdrawal, and stress. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you were here for the guilt sermon a couple of weeks ago? If you, you were here for the guilt sermon. If you remember that, what were the hallmark signs of guilt? I just named them. What about grief? How does grief look? Grief looks, what, exactly like that. When we engage in any activity that is outside of God's will, we are wired to feel grief because there's something that we have lost. So there are emotional issues that are attached to operating outside of God's plan for you. There are also legal issues. The state of Texas actually defines sex as any contact, even through clothing, as sexual contact. In the state of Texas, anybody under the age of 17 does not have the legal right to consent to anything, and that includes sex, no matter who it's with. 16-year-old and 16-year-old, they don't have the right to consent. There's some case law out there, but otherwise you are setting yourself up for going to jail. If you have sex with anybody 14 years or younger, even if you're 14 years, if you're 15 years old and a day, and they're 14 years old and 364 days, you have committed a felony that is punishable by 20 years in prison. And you'll have to be registered as a sexual offender for the rest of your life. And that means this. You're not going to go to college. You're not going to go in the armed services. You're not going to get the job. Because you thought you'd get away with it. You thought, what well, will never happen to me? Every year in the state of Texas, 2,500 young men have their life ruined because of one decision. Not 10, not 20, one decision. There are very, you know, then the fact is, is that I, I know that nobody sitting in this room would ever want that to happen to you. But I want you to know something. I have teenage daughters. That law means something to me. Next thing, emotional issues, legal issues. The third thing is this. There are emotion, or physical issues that are also attached to sex outside of marriage. We're going to talk about sexually transmitted diseases first. Gonorrhea, chlamydia, herpes, syphilis, HIV, HPV. 80% of all infectious diseases in the entire world, 87% of those are sexually transmitted. Two-thirds of all STDs occur in people under the age of 25. Let me ask you a question real quick. What is the average age of marriage in the United States of America? 25. So two-thirds of all those STD infections are, incur are occurring in that population. Now, there are two very alarming trends that have popped up. Go to the CDC website and look these things up. Sexually transmitted diseases are on the upride. They're, they're moving up statistically in women over 40. Women over 40 have started to peak in sexually transmitted diseases. And has also started to increase in men and women over the age of 60. Let me 
I want to make sure you're hearing me. It is not just youth who are in danger of sexually transmitted diseases. It is anybody who's having sex outside of marriage or having sex with somebody that had sex outside of marriage. One in four sexually active teenagers has a sexually transmitted disease. If we were to go to Liberty Hill High School and say all of you who had sex over there and pull out 25% of them, those kids are likely to have a sexually transmitted disease. But the fact of the matter is this, is you don't get to do that. So you don't know who that one in four is. You don't know if the person that you're choosing to have that relationship with, if, if they perhaps had that relationship with somebody else that had it, or maybe somebody else, or maybe three or four partners ago. You don't know who they are. Why would you take the chance? Because there are lifelong consequences to sexually transmitted diseases. Chlamydia will sterilize you. Ladies, you may not even know that you have it. You can have it for your entire life, and the first time you realize you had it is when you go to the doctor saying, why can't we have a baby? The doctor says, well, I have to tell you, you have chlamydia and, and it sterilized you. Oh, but it was just one night, 25 years. It doesn't matter. That's all it takes. HPV, human papillomavirus. I, I want to talk to you about this. This is the thing that Rick Perry caught so much flack for a couple of years ago, if you all remember that, where he was signing an executive order that required all girls to have the HPV virus or vaccination. I want to tell you something. I agree with him. I'm going to be real, I, I, want to, I want you to know that. People say, well, that's just saying that the girls can have sex. No, I'm not saying that. I'm inoculating them against the guy. I fully expect that my daughters will arrive on their wedding night ready for their husband. And I hope and pray that their husband will get there in the same condition. But what if he had that one night ten years ago? You see, it's not the women who transmit it. It's the men that transmit it. I challenge you that if you are the parent of an adolescent or teenage girl that you have this discussion with your family physician, talk about what the ramifications are, but make the decision for your child's health and well-being. You're not getting them on the pill. You're not doing that. You're protecting them just like you would against mumps or measles or tetanus or any of those other things. Pregnancy. One million teenagers become pregnant every single year, and one-third of those pregnancies, 340,000 pregnancies, end in abortion. Lord, have mercy on our souls. But it was just one night. It was just, it was just I, it could, yes, yes, it is. Because that's all it takes is just one. It just takes one. Four in ten, 40% of girls will become pregnant before they reach the age of 20. And 18% of the pregnancies in women over 40 are to single moms. There is a very real physical issue when it comes to having sex outside marriage. Let me, let me, let me kind of take the pressure off of you. Guess what? If you don't have sex until you're married, and the person you married never had sex until you're married, everything I just said doesn't apply to you. It's got nothing on you. You have to worry about any of that stuff. It doesn't matter because you didn't have sex. They didn't have sex. Praise God. Glory be to God. That just means what? That you're living according to His principles. And guess what? God has a plan to bless you in that. Now what happens if you're sitting there saying, but I've already had sex. You ask His forgiveness from this day forward, no more sex. It's, and I want you to hear me. It's just that easy. It is literally that easy to say, you know what, I make the decision right now that I will live according to His principles. I make the decision right now that I will do what God has called me to do. There is also a spiritual issue to having sex outside of marriage. 
Sex outside of marriage anesthetizes you to the God-ordained purposes of sex. Sex outside of marriage becomes not about the relationship. It becomes about the physical release. It becomes about the physical, meeting those physical and biological needs that the Bible says have control over your own body about. There are also issues as it relates to the fact that it deadens the joy that God intended for you. I want you to think about something. God intended you to have joy through sex. But when you're outside of His will, when you're doing it in a way that He did not intend, then it deadens you to the joy that God has planned for you. And it also can become a barrier between you and God and you and your spouse. You see, when you have sex outside of marriage, you actually carry that experience with you to your marriage. You carry the images. And a lot of times the spouse, what we see in, in marriage counseling is a lot of times the spouses get wrapped up. You know, do they actually meet the standards that you have because you've already had sex outside of marriage? Do they live up to your expectations? And that can be devastating in a marriage. There are other things that can be devastating. Now, one of the things where we have asked students and we've asked parents and adults to ask us questions. You know, we want to hear what you have to say about this. And there is this rather delicate subject, it. You're thinking, surely he's not going to. We're going to talk about self-relief. If you know what I'm saying, say, uh-huh. We're going to talk about it. Y'all go ahead and everybody squirm together. Squirm. Everybody squirm. Be uncomfortable. But put yourself up here in my shoes. Okay? <laughs> I'm the one having to have to talk. However, I'm going to punt to a gentleman by the name of James Dobson, who, if you remember, Mr. or Dr. Dobson actually is the overseer of the Focus on the Family. And he has actually written about this, and so I'm going to read some excerpts to you about what he says about this. He had received a question from a mother of a 13-year-old son, and the, thir- and the mother had caught the 13-year-old in the act. If you know what I'm talking about, say, uh-huh. And she was in a panic about it. And she writes Dr. Dobson a letter and says, Oh, my goodness, the world's coming to an end. What in the world should I do? Because I caught Junior, you know... Say, uh-huh. <laughs> okay. And so Dr. Dobson responds to her, and this is what he says. I don't think you should invade that private world at all unless there are unique circumstances that lead you to do so. I offer that advice while acknowledging that self-relief is a highly controversial subject and Christian leaders differ widely in their perspectives on it. As a matter of fact, let me stop right there. I know that some of you will disagree with some of the stuff we're going to talk here, and I encourage you to have the debate with me. That there's something that you want to talk about, something we've talked about today, I encourage you to come in and let's visit about it. He says this, I will answer your question, but hope you understand that some Bible scholars will disagree emphatically with what I will say. First, let's consider self-relief from a medical perspective. We can say without fear of contradiction that there is no scientific evidence to indicate that this act is harmful to the body. Despite centuries of terrifying warnings given to young people historically, it does not cause blindness, weakness, mental retardation, acne, or any other physical problem. If it did, the entire male population, about half the females, would be blind, weak, simple-minded, and stupid. <laughs> Between 95 and 98% of all boys gay engage in this practice, and the rest have been known to lie. It is, as close, <laughs> it is as close to being a universal behavior as is likely to occur. A lesser but still significant percentage of girls also engage in what was once called self-gratification. 
As for the spiritual implications of self-relief, I will have to defer to the theologians for a more definitive response. It is interesting to me, however, that Scripture does not address this subject. When he talks about deferring to the theologians, that is my responsibility. That's why I want to share with you um, my thoughts on this. First of all, it is not the act of self-relief itself that causes the problem. Instead, it is the hidden fears, the desires, the temptations, and the guilt associated with it that causes the most problems. Right now, I want to tell you that if you are wrestling with this issue, whether you are a student, a young person, 20-something, married, whoever you are, if you're wrestling with this, I want you to know that there is help for you. As a matter of fact, we actually have a guy that is now part of our pastoral counseling who actually specializes in these issues. The fact is, is that Satan can use this against you also to cause you to feel that you are unworthy, that God could never love somebody like you. And I want to remind you again that God's forgiveness is available for all things. And it covers even this. Self-relief can be harmful if it is done while fantasizing about an immoral relationship. Jesus said, just thinking immoral thoughts is a sin. And so self-relief can be harmful if you're doing that in a sinful manner. It can be harmful with pornography or any other unclean picture set before your eyes. We're going to talk about pornography in two weeks when we talk about the ser- in the Sermon on Temptation. But this is what the psychiatrists and psychologists and the scientists say, that seeing a pornographic image for even five seconds, that image can remain with you for over ten years. Nobody w- you don't want to carry that into your marriage relationship. You don't want to carry that image around with you for the rest of your life. It can also be harmful if it's an obsessive habit. What exactly defines obsessive? A general guide is this, is if, that, if that's all you think about or occupies a large part of what you think about, then you have a problem. In exactly the same way that people with addictions face those addictions, this can also be an addictive process. If you feel like this has gotten um, ahead of you, that you cannot control this, that you are not in control of what's going on, then you also need to seek help. And I want to encourage you that if you're a student, if you're still at home with your parents or, or even just in, in contact with your parents, if you're a young man, I encourage you to have this discussion with your dad. If you're a young lady, I encourage you to have this discussion with your mom. If for whatever reason they are not available, then any blood relative of the same gender with you, have the discussion with them. If for some reason you do not feel comfortable having that discussion with them, if you're a young man, then you come find one of the pastors. That would be either Neil, Tim, or me. You come find one of us. If you are a young lady, then you come find one of our wives, and you have that discussion with them. What I want you to know is, do not come into this discussion feeling guilty and overwhelmed and all that stuff. Come into the discussion with the sense of that God's going to forgive you for this, that God has a plan even for all this. Y'all say amen to that? I'm going to finish up with what Dr. Dobson said. If you don't struggle with self-relief, great. There's nothing wrong with you either. But if you do, don't lose sleep over it. And certainly don't let guilt drive you away from God. In his book... Preparing for adolescence, he said this, It is my opinion that self-relief is not much of an issue with God. It's a normal part of adolescence, which involves no one else. It does not cause disease. It does not produce babies. And Jesus did not mention it in the Bible. I'm not telling you to engage in self-relief, and I hope that you won't feel the need for it. The best thing I can do is suggest that you talk to God personally about this matter and decide what he wants you to do. Parents, I want to encourage you that you have this discussion with your children before they hit puberty. Have this discussion, I know that sounds shocking to you, but have this discussion before it even becomes an issue. If you're sitting there saying, well, my children are already adolescents or teenagers, 
you know what, don't say it's too late, I can't do anything about it. Have that discussion with them today. If you need assistance having this discussion, we have resources for that also. Y'all give glory to God. Point number two is over. I just have one thing to say. Actually, I can't say that either. All right, here we go. Point number three, sex is God's gift. Y'all say amen to that. God has given us the gift of sex. God has given us the ability. He has given us the desire. He's given us the wherewithal. He's given us the anatomy to have sex. And God has done that because he has specific purposes for sex. First of all, the purpose for sex is procreation. It says this in Genesis 1:28, and God blessed him. Now, I, I just want you to pay attention to this. I want you to watch this because this is one of my favorite passages. Can I get an amen for that? It says, And God blessed him, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is the way that Pastor Michael interprets that passage. And God blessed him and said, Had sex. Has sex. I mean, God said, and it's a blessing to us, that God has chosen to populate the earth this way because there are other organisms out there that are not so lucky as we are. When we have sex according to God's principles, it is a blessing to us. God also creates to have sex for intimacy. In Song of Solomon, by the way, I encourage you to read the Song of Solomon, specifically if you're married. We're going to talk about this again in a couple of weeks, but read the Song of Solomon. You'll be surprised what's in there. Song of Solomon 2.6 says this, His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. There is no more intimate time than when a husband and a wife, a monogamous couple, shares this experience. There is no greater level of intimacy that you can experience beyond this. God also created sex for pleasure. Song of Solomon, again, it says this in, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 2, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. You know, there are, are so many people out there, and a lot of people, specifically, you know, even from 30 or 40 years ago, they were brought up to believe that sex was only for one thing, and that was just to make babies. And that your only responsibility for sex, that it was a dirty, filthy, nasty thing that you shouldn't enjoy at all. If you enjoyed it, there was something simply wrong with you. That's not the way God made it. God actually made sex for us to enjoy, to actually derive pleasure from. And I, I want to tell you that that is, that is bound by the restrictions and by the covenants of marriage. God also created sex to strengthen marriages. It says this in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The fact is that God implemented marriage. He is the one that designed marriage, implemented marriage, and he designed sex to also strengthen marriage, to strengthen that marriage relationship. Now, I want to ask you this question, and I'll actually give you the answers. This is, I, I, just, I want you guys to pay attention. The fact is, is that we live according to God's plans and principles in every single part of our life. Now, I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about in every single part of your life. And he does have a plan for you in every single part of your life. When we live according to those principles, fantastic, spectacular things happen. Amen? There was a study done by the University of Chicago, and that study was looking at sex. And it asked a series of questions, and there's two of those questions I want to point out to you. It first of all said this. One of the questions was this. Which population group has the most sex? Guess which population group has the most sex? Married, heterosexual, monogamous, evangelical Christians. Give each other high fives. That's us. We win. Woo! Come on, come on. Be excited about that. Why is that? It's because you're living according to God's principles. Question number two. 
Who is having the best sex? This is a question they asked, and they were asked to rate their overall sexual experience on a scale of 1 to 10, and guess which group rated having the best sex more than any other group? Married, heterosexual, monogamous, evangelical Christians. Once again, we did it. Amen? I mean, isn't that a cool thing? Y'all give God... Now, the reason that is, is because we're, we're operating within God's principles. It's this simple. It is this simple. God has planned that out for you. He has planned when you'll experience a desire. He has planned that you would have a spouse. Now, not everybody, according to what the Apostle Paul says, not everybody will have a spouse, not everybody will have this experience. But if you are one of those, God has plans even for this. See, God's gift to us is an incredible gift. That He loved us so much that He implemented this for us. Like I said before, the gift that God has given to you, He has intended for you to give that gift to somebody else. And His intent is for you to give that gift unblemished, unadulterated, to the person that He has intended for you to marry. I know, because I know, that many of you in this room right now are saying, well, I messed that up. I missed that. I guess the gift that I have to give to somebody is not worthy. Remember this. The Bible says that when we give our lives to Christ, we are what? We are a new creation. It may be that you have given your life to Christ but still have allowed this sin to be a part of your life. The Bible says that that forgiveness covers everything. That through forgiveness, that sin is not just whitewashed over. It is gone. That you are made new in Him every single day. But you have a responsibility responsibility starts with this, that you are to go to him for forgiveness and say, God, I need your forgiveness for this. And guess what? His forgiveness is there. But then there's a second expectation that's set with that. And that is repentance. And repentance means you turn away from that sin. That you don't engage in that sin anymore. And through that, you have a gift once again that is unblemished that God has given to you that you can share with one that God has intended you to share with. You know, the really cool thing is is that for so many of you in here, you have the opportunity to do exactly as God has called you to do. And I am so thankful for you. And I pray for courage. I pray for strength. I pray for wisdom for you. For those of you that feel like you've already made the mistake, I, I just, I, I can't begin to tell you enough. Jesus loves you exactly where you are. For God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And all he's waiting for you to do is just open that door. Revelation 3.20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and allows me to come in, I will come in and fellowship with him and he with me. It may be that you need to take one step back and start with the first relationship. That first relationship is with Christ. By acknowledging Him, as your Lord and Savior, knowing that He went to the cross on purpose for you. Once you have that relationship, every other relationship is easy. Father, we come before you right now just to acknowledge that you are the Almighty God, you are the Creator of all things. And Father, we thank you that your forgiveness is available to us no matter what. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here that is wrestling with the decision to follow you, that they would choose today to give their life to you, to trust you as their Lord and Savior, that they would admit that they need you, believe in you, call on your name. Lord, I pray for any of those here that are wrestling with the guilt and depression that comes along with living outside of your will. That, Lord, that perhaps today, maybe just by coming forward for prayer or just making that commitment from their chair, Lord God, that they will choose today to seek your forgiveness and to live the life that you have called them to do. Lord, I just pray that you would just give them courage, that you would just, uh, just let them experience your peace and your comfort. Father, above all things, we thank you for how you love us for sending Jesus to die on the cross for us and his death and resurrection. Father, make us whole, make us new before you. If you need to make a decision for Jesus this morning, if you need prayer in your life over something that's overwhelmed you, if you want to join the church, whatever it may be, then won't you come forward as we stand together?